Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Mina El-Arabi. She is the editor-in-chief of The National, the prominent English-language daily published in Abu Dhabi and read worldwide. Mina and I will be talking about her reflections on Iraq, her career in journalism, developments in the UAE and the Gulf, and journalism in the digital era. My conversation with Mina El-Orebi after this short break. To be able to still have the Mars mission, also we've had the um, Baraka nuclear reactor here also um, start working and get fueled up during the pandemic. Um, you know, the UAE doesn't want 2020 be, to be remembered only for COVID-19. 2020 will also go down as the year that they had a Mars mission and they started their nuclear reactor. There is an Iraqi national identity, despite what people may argue, um, who don't know Iraq. There's a lot that ties Iraqis together. And part of it is, is a sense of belief in the potential of the country. But also part of it is a sense of collective trauma and how do you get through that um, as, a, as, as a number of communities together, but still one united Iraq. And so having been through everything that Iraq has gone through, frankly, in the last four decades, it, it, as a country has been resilient. And that is the greatest source of optimism in addition to the young people on the streets. Welcome back to On the Middle East. That was Mina El-Orebi, Editor-in-Chief of The National, who will be joining us here shortly. I've been looking forward to my conversation with Mina, not only because of my regard for her as a journalist and editor, but to get her observations about Iraq, about which she has a personal as well as professional perspective. And let's talk about Iraq for just a minute. As Mina writes in her article this week, the 30-year anniversary of Saddam Hussein's August 1st, 1990 invasion and occupation of Kuwait passed with relatively little recognition. One reason may be that almost 60% of Iraq's population of nearly 40 million people is under 25 years old. That means well over half of all Iraqis have no personal memory of Saddam Hussein, and that probably goes for the majority of those Iraqis demonstrating against corruption and for political reform today. Now, back in 1990, for those of us of a certain age who remember it, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait was a defining moment, a turning point in the region, setting Iraq on its path to confrontation with the United States and putting in motion the events which led to the U.S. overthrowing Saddam in 2003 and all that followed. Now, Iraq has thankfully moved on from Saddam Hussein, and there is real hope in the demands for change from Iraq's youth, and those like Prime Minister Khadami and President Saleh, who are trying to manage this change. In the meantime, it seems to me recognition of events tend to matter, and the 30-year mark of Saddam Hussein's terrible decision to invade Kuwait should be a moment of remembrance and reflection, given its impact and consequences on the people of Kuwait, the tragedy that it foreshadowed for another decade of Ba'athist rule for Iraqis, 
and what it meant for the U.S. role in the Middle East. And that brings us to our conversation today with Mina El Orebi. As I mentioned before, she is the editor-in-chief of The National. Mina has had a high-impact career as a leader, journalist, and scholar. Prior to her present position, she was assistant editor and bureau chief in Washington, D.C. for Ashark Alauset. She was also a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and she stays actively involved in WEF Middle East projects. She is also a member of the Board of Trustees for the American University in Iraq, Suleimani, and she joins us here now. Mina, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. In your piece in The National, you described how Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait was a benchmark in a personal journey for you. Tell us about that experience and some of your reflections on that important moment in your life. It's hard to believe 30 years have passed from that day. It was a major turning point for us as a family. My father was a diplomat. We were in Saudi Arabia because he was posted there as the consul in the Iraqi embassy in Riyadh. And he had had many reservations about Saddam Hussein's regime. And as matters got worse, he was always concerned, as was my mother. And the Kuwait invasion happened, and he made a decision not to go back to Iraq and to defect. It was a very difficult decision, more than anything, because of his entire family and my mother's entire family being in Iraq. And so we were cut off from them and loved ones in our country for 13 years until Saddam, Hussein, Saddam Hussein's regime fell. I was 10 at the time. And by then, of course, you have some understanding of the world, but not much. And so all I know is from that moment on, our lives became filled with anxiety, with concern, primarily for our family back home, less so for ourselves. But that sense of stability and belonging was really taken away for quite some time. You find with Iraq being such a young country and, and many young people on the streets uh, demanding change and reform and protesting against corruption, do you find that the memory of Saddam Hussein's regime and its many crimes has faded a bit from memory? How do you see that time and that his rule as fitting into where Iraq is today? It hasn't faded from memory, but it's faded from understanding or blaming the day-to-day -day problems that the country suffers from. And even though, unfortunately, most politicians today in Baghdad still try to pin things on his regime, the reality is most people will tell you it's been 17 years since Saddam was in power. And so despite the reality that he oversaw the destruction of many of Iraq's institutions in the sense that everything became tied to him primarily and his cronies, corruption first started setting in during the 1990s due to the sanctions. But still, there was a state, there was law and order, even if you didn't agree with the laws that he set. And today, that's probably the paramount matter that people are concerned about. There is no real sense of law and order. 
And so in the day-to-day -day discourse, it isn't a case of what did Saddam do right or wrong. It's much more about who's in power now and how the current political system has failed its people. Very few would argue with all the problems of Saddam's dictatorship, but at the same time, very few can actually say with a straight face that we can still blame this on Saddam Hussein's regime. You've been back to Iraq many times since 2003. How is your own personal experience informed your coverage and understanding of Iraq? And are you optimistic, uh, pessimistic, hopeful? Both Prime Minister Al-Qadami and President Saleh have been committed to reform. Uh, do you think that's possible? I do think that Prime Minister Kadami and President Saleh have probably the best two we've had in power since 2003. Uh, the problem is, or since even you know Saddam's time, the problem is it's not about them. The problem is the political system itself and the system of corruption that set into the country. And so with their best of intentions, they're both politically weak and also the corruption, nepotism, mafia state that has emerged in the country makes their ability quite limited. Having said that, I am optimistic because of the civic activists on the ground in Iraq, the nonviolent protesters that are pushing for not only reform, but a really restructuring of the system in order for it to serve Iraq first rather than limited political or even sectarian agendas. And so that gives me optimism. Also, the fact is Iraq for many, many years has been written off in 2014, Time magazine published a cover with a map of Iraq burning and said the end of Iraq, claimed that Iraq was ending. And even at the height of ISIS and all the problems we had then, I was among many Iraqis that argued that we will survive this, that the country will survive this, it's resilient. There is an Iraqi national identity, despite what people may argue, um, who don't know Iraq. There's a lot that ties Iraqis together. And part of it is, is a sense of belief in the potential of the country. But also part of it is a sense of collective trauma and how do you get through that um, as, a, as, as a number of communities together, but still one united Iraq. And so having been through everything that Iraq has gone through, frankly, in the last four decades, it, it as a country has been resilient. And that is the greatest source of optimism in addition to the young people on the streets. Let me ask you about something a little closer to home. Um, the UAE has had a fairly remarkable record in testing its population for the coronavirus and quickly hospitalizing and treating those with, with COVID. And as of today, out of 61,322 cases, there have only been 351 deaths. That's less than 1% of those who have the virus, well below the fatality rate of about 3.7% worldwide. And Ambassador Elotaiba spoke about this with us a few weeks ago on, on this podcast. What is your ground assessment, as it were, of uh, the impact of COVID and how the government there is managing it? It's been incredible seeing how the UAE has dealt with COVID-19. The first case was 
from a family from Wuhan, from China, that was visiting here as tourists. And the UAE immediately announced its first case, started tracking, started asking anyone that had any symptoms to get um, tested. The hospitals were open. People were being tested and treated for free and continue to do so if you have any symptoms or if you were above a certain age and so forth. So they immediately reacted. There was no sense of hesitation or no sense of belittling the impact that this could be. They had done their uh, research, so to speak, about how to secure the country, both in terms of healthcare provision, but also in terms of food security. The images that we saw from around the world of panic buying never happened in the UAE. And part of it is because they had done the groundwork. There is a very concrete uh, food security, uh, health security um, framework in the country that was immediately put into force. And there was a crisis unit that um, came into force also. It's been incredible covering it at the national, of course, we've been covering minute by minute coronavirus uh, developments around the world, but of course, also in the UAE. And as you said, you know, there are a total of 61,000, above 61,000 cases, 351 unfortunate deaths, but also uh, 55,000 recoveries. Uh, and amongst that, over 5 million tests. So the testing has been incredible to see. And it was about the leadership in the country taking it seriously, but also having the capability to have a digital transformation almost overnight. Um, working from home capabilities were immediately put in for both the public and private sector. And so it has been remarkable to be in a country like this and actually see um, a successful implementation at a time when very little was known about COVID-19. You know, looking back with hindsight now, we know much more. But at the time, very little was known. But immediately, measures like wearing of masks, social distancing, lockdowns, everything was put into place very quickly. Mina, how do you see then the long-term impact of COVID-19 combined with the fall in oil prices on the UAE economy? Uh, have infrastructure projects, uh, if some have clearly been put on hold. There's the issue of expat labor, tourism, overseas investment. Where do you see the, the long-term impacts? There's a number of long-term impacts. Of course, certain projects were put on hold. Uh, in addition to, uh, we were all anticipating Expo 2020 to happen in 2020, and now it's been postponed for a year. So there are certain elements that were postponed. In addition to the fact that tourism, travel was a key component of you know, Dubai's economy. Having said that, there are very clear indicators of growth also, whether it's on in the digital sector, whether it's innovating for different applications to deal um, with this development, medical tourism, um, all of that is coming into place. And you know, one of the things that's made, for example, Dubai and even Emirates Airlines so strong is their ability to innovate. And they've been amongst the first to innovate with how you deal with travelers, you know, everything from putting in uh, insurance for COVID-19 when you get your ticket with Emirates Airlines to how people are tested and, and tracked and so forth when they travel. For the wider UAE economy, of course, um, oil prices were hit, but at the same time, 
there has been a, a clear plan for economic diversification for quite some time. And this almost puts a further impetus for that economic diversification. You see a greater focus now on human security in terms of, as I said, food security, healthcare, all these um, sorts of uh, sectors that were considered important and now being given priority. So that also will help, innovation will help new startups that push in that direction there has been a stimulus package put in place um, throughout the UAE. And I think one of the long-term impacts will be a digital transformation that was beginning, but now has been uh, accelerated. In addition to that, there's a real sense of globalization, how it works, cooperation. You know, the UAE really stands for the best of what there is with globalization. And so they are seen as a center of what can work when you work together, you know, everything from helping a million healthcare workers around the world through PPE donations that the UAE did around the world to looking at, you know, vaccine trials that are in tandem with China. Um, there's a very important clinical trial happening here in relation to what the Chinese are doing. So it has been interesting to see how the UAE finds itself not only domestically, but also has its position on a world stage. No one can deny the fact that economically everyone's hurt from this. Nobody can turn around and say this country uh, came out from COVID-19 stronger economically in the short term. But I think in the long term here, the UAE is better placed than many and also is jumping on this to become, you know, an opportunity to change certain elements in the economy and the different sectors that I just referenced. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask uh, what you're, how you're covering and what you're picking up regarding the Mars mission. Uh, this is obviously a big news, and I would assume that this is something that a lot of people in the UAE are very excited about. Yes, you know, the idea that in six years, the UAE set up a space program and was actually able to launch a probe um, to Mars, uh, with, of course, uh, collaboration with other countries. Japan played an important role, as did the US in terms of, you know, knowledge transfer technology. But at the end of the day, there were 3000 Emiratis working on this program. Um, and 40% women working on the program is, is really remarkable, led by um, Minister of State Saad Amiri, who's a young dynamic woman. And there is a lot of pride in the Mars mission, not just among Emiratis, but as Arabs, you know, the idea that even if we didn't have a pandemic, an Arab country can have this scientific development and, and become, you know, our version of the moonshot and think about the potential. If you're a young Arab and you're interested in space, if you're interested in science, technologies, you don't have to leave the region necessarily. You can have an opportunity here. And part of what the UAE has done is ensured that their space program is seen as not only a UAE project of national pride, but also a regional project. They really push that this is a this is an Arab mission. They've opened up their doors for Arab scientists and scientists from all around the world who want to come here and innovate. It was remarkable to see it still go ahead during the pandemic. I mean, again, fast thinking, quick action. They sent the team over to Japan several weeks earlier than expected because they wanted them to quarantine there. So even before Japan said that they would be required to have a quarantine, they took that initial step and said, we're going to go ahead. We've assessed it. This is what we need to do. So they put in all the plans in place. Um, and so 
to be able to still have the Mars mission. Also, we've had the um, Baraka nuclear reactor here also um, start working and get fueled up during the pandemic. Um, you know, the UAE doesn't want 2020 be, to be remembered only for COVID-19. 2020 will also go down as the year that they had a Mars mission and they started their nuclear reactor. This week, UAE Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed spoke with his Iranian counterpart, uh, Mohammad Javad Zarif. Has there been a turnaround in UAE-Iran relations over the last year? And what do you think this, this all means for the Gulf, given the tensions in U.S.-Iran and Iran-Gulf relations? You know, the, the UAE has never cut its um, ties with the Iranians during a long period of time. For the UAE, they want to see you know, a stable region and want to temper down some of the very hot conflicts that we do have here. Um, Sheikh Abdullah speaking to Jawad Zarif was important. The UAE at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic also sent aid to the Iranians. They had previously sent aid when Iran had its um, terrible earthquake several years ago. So they basically reached out several times over. And part of that is to say, well, what can we talk about? Where can we find grounds for diplomacy. The UAE has always been very, very clear that there has to be diplomatic solutions for the conflicts and the problems that we have in the region. Um, the, the call itself, of course, comes at an interesting time because Iran is diplomatically uh, increasingly isolated and the UAE is trying to see how to help the Iranians find a path where they can come to some agreements it, not much was, um, you know, briefed about the call itself. So I would be remiss to try to pontificate about the actual details of the call. But what we have understood from the call is that it comes within the spirit of how do we find solutions to the problems that we do face in the region. Mina, with all the developments taking place in the UAE, and you mentioned a number of them, the, the Mars mission, the civil nuclear reactor, those positive achievements, also dealing with COVID-19 and the, the oil price challenge. Are Emiratis more focused on issues at home, or do you find that they are still as interested as ever in the regional conflicts, which you cover uh, in the national, such as Libya, Syria, Yemen, and the Israeli-Palestinian issue? It's a combination of both like anywhere else in the world, people are concerned with what immediately impacts them. And during this pandemic, I think that's the case for everybody. They want to make sure that their kids are being educated, that their health care is provided for, that they have jobs. And once you go through that layer, there is an interest, of course, in where their country is amidst a greatly changing period of our histories. So projects of, of significance like the Mars mission and others are very important for Emiratis because they are ambitious. It's a young country um, celebrating its 50th anniversary of you know, unification, its modern nation state next year. And so this idea at 50 years, what have we achieved? There's a real sense of 
duty and obligation to where the forefathers um, of this country, especially Sheikh Zayed, um, founding father of the nation, you know, he gave them a nation that was stable and prospering and had really done incredible advances, especially when you compare it to how other countries in the region have fared. There are much richer countries in the region that are doing a lot worse. You know, we spoke about my home country, Iraq, and, and you can't even begin to compare where Iraq was 50 years ago to where it is now and, and the same for the Emirates. So there is a real sense of what are we doing as Emiratis to live up to the potential and also the dreams of our ancestors. There's a real sense of, of identity that way. In addition to that, of course, what happens in Libya, Syria, Yemen, um, is of significance and interest, but is not as immediate. I think what you see here, which is very interesting, is you know where are we fitting in global trends? Um, you see in the UAE, there's always you know a, a setting the bar high, comparing itself on a world stage. You know they have an ambition by. Um, 2071, um, which will be the 100 year centenary anniversary of the founding of the country to be amongst the top countries in many fields in the world. Um, so the benchmark really is global. And so while they do care, of course, about what's going on in, in conflicts in the region, how it impacts not only them, but also other Arabs, fellow, uh, you know, fellow citizens of the world, there is much more a sense of responsibility to be amongst the best in the world. Tell me what you find is some of the major challenges and changes navigating both Middle East politics and the ever-shifting landscape of digital journalism as editor-in-chief of The National. Well, it has been interesting. Three years since we relaunched The National and I became editor. Um, and it, it, it's fascinating because in some ways, if you live in the UAE, you have to read The National to know all the latest developments about you know, travel and education and so forth. But also, if you have an interest in the Middle East, you read The National to, to understand what's happening regionally and globally. And you know, Middle East politics is forever interesting. You never have a quiet day. Sometimes it's exhausting because it's heartbreaking to see so many countries going through turmoil. I mean, covering Lebanon day to day, covering Libya, covering Iraq is heartbreaking, covering Syria, Palestine, um, all these nations that are suffering from the consequences of politics largely. But at the same time, there is the potential and what's incredible about so many of the cultural shifts that are happening in the region, um, young people coming up with solutions for everything from, you know, innovative technologies to civic actions. So that's really exciting. And of course, with digital journalism, you can reach readers all over the world. Um, and I think this is the same for you, Andrew, you know, when you think about who's my audience, it could be anyone and everyone, but at the same time, who, who you want to target. And for, for us at the National, it's really important that we are part of the staple of anyone consuming media and interested in um, the Middle East, but also in, in global trends. Um, we find that a lot of our coverage on technology, on health, on mobility, um, you know, changes in the workplace, all of that, whether it's based on the region or globally, gets very well read. 
but digital journalism is also difficult in the sense that it's there is so much noise out there and so cutting through the noise um and and being focused and knowing what are the key stories what are the stories we have to tell what are the stories that we're going to tell even if they don't go viral and even if they don't get hundreds of thousands of reads but are important for us as part of our mission to explain what's going on from the region on the region and i think that that discipline is one that's a challenge for for journalists all over the world Yes, well said. And I think you and I could probably have a, a long conversation on many of the points um, you raised uh, as also being in the same business. Let me ask, as our, our time is, is drawing to a close, uh, what is your advice for journalists starting out? And if you could share a little about what it's like being a woman, and is that in journalism? And has that made a difference in your professional journey? And if so, how? I don't know how to answer that um, concisely. We're going to need another hour. Um, for advice for young journalists, know your information. Know your credible sources. Be well informed about the history of any topic you're broaching. Uh, too often, the push for a quick hit, a quick story is leading to frankly, mistakes. Don't be that journalist. Be that journalist that is absolutely 100% sure of what they're presenting to their audience, because that is a responsibility. The problem with social media and everybody being an instant publisher, if they have a WhatsApp group at their fingertips or a Twitter account, that is not journalism. Journalism is making sure that what you are putting out there is factual, is accurate, um, and is informative. That, that would be my real advice to any journalist today, um, in addition to building trusted sources and building your reputation. Because in the long term, whether people trust you with information, stories will come to you is based on that relationship of trust. Um, being a woman uh, has, its, um, has its plus sides and its um, tricky sides sometimes. I have to say in the UAE, and I've worked in Washington, I've worked in London, of course, I've covered stories around the world. In the UAE, it's the, it's the place I've been most comfortable as a woman. Um, there is a real respect here for women. There is really no nonsense um, in having to deal with people as a woman. Um, and that has been refreshing. It wasn't something that... I could have told you three and a half years ago when I first moved here, but it's been incredible to feel very confident as a woman and actually supported. Um, I would say, you know, one of the tricky things is I am, I think quite, um, let's say emotional. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily being a woman or just who my character is and, and covering Iraq um, from the first day I became a journalist till now has been difficult because it is very difficult to disconnect my emotional ties to it. And for anybody who becomes a journalist and writes about matters they care about, making sure that you take care of your mental health, but also allowing yourself to shed a tear every now and then when something feels too close to home. Mina, thank you for a fantastic interview today. I appreciate your spending the time with us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Andrew. A real pleasure speaking to you. And I hope to see you in Abu Dhabi soon. We will be right back with a few concluding remarks from my conversation with Mina El-Arabi after this short break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. 
Elmonitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Elmonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Elmonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Welcome back to On the Middle East. I was taken with Mina's optimism for Iraq based on the country's resilience, as she described it, after decades of dictatorship and civil war, and agree that despite Iraq's present challenges, and there are many, this resilience and shared identity and the spark provided by Iraq's youth should not be understated and should not be overlooked. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast, On Israel with Ben Caspit, at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.